Okay. We are in 2 Timothy this morning. Before we get started, why don't we have a word of prayer again. This morning as we come to worship you, we thank you that you receive our offering. Not because we're so good, because we certainly are. Not because we're so righteous, we certainly are. Because your son has given us his life so that we can share over to our Christ and be a blessing. And so we thank you for that. And in the light of the song we sang this morning already, worship you is our life. And I'd say some of us are probably singing from emotion, lamentation, depths of woe that are from you and trust you. Some of us are thinking upon your sacrifice and are dwelling on it and are worshiping and are amazed and are blown away. And that's the place we are. Help us to continue to gaze upon your sacrifice as we do our study. Some of us are hurting, are hurting and broken within and especially overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. <coughs> My plan was to be at starting at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. But in order to truly understand 9 to the end of the chapter, you really have to get what came before. Some of you weren't here last week. Some of you were, but I want to remind you that last week we talked about there are a number brief on this because we, we went on it real heavily last week. There are a number of people in the scriptures. As I said last week, there are some bit players, there are some major players. Paul is obviously a major player. There are a number of bit players that we don't even know anything about. We don't even know who they are. They just show up one time and they're gone. Sometimes they're just their names mentioned and they're gone. So you have big players and little players in the story that we find in the scriptures. I want to remind you that the scriptures are all about a story. It's been labeled the story of God's redemptive historical plan or God's historical redemptive story. And that's what we see all the way through the scriptures from Genesis 1 to 1 all the way through Revelation 22. We have God's redemptive story being played out in the lives of people and most importantly in the life of Jesus Christ. One of the things I've always wrestled with is why are these people mentioned in the scriptures? And there's a variety of reasons why. But I would present to you that although there's only one hero, Jesus Christ, and we must always remember that, at the same time, the people that are given in the scriptures are given for our instruction. In some cases, it is to remind us not to live like they did, not to throw our lives away, not to waste it. In some cases, it's 
the people are given to us as examples for us of how to live and glorify Christ. Not how to be good moral people, not how to be good law-keeping people, but to be godly and mature people. This is what it looks like to, to love Jesus and to respond to the love of Jesus through his people. So it's important we remember that because today what we have from verse 9, basically all the way through verse 21, we're not going to get that far. I don't even know how far we're going to get to 21. But in that whole entire section, we have a laundry list of people. Some good, some not so good. Some really bad. Some that were bad and became good. Really intriguing, a really intriguing sight. We'll see what it leads this week, but not next week when we get out. So let's read the text, if you would follow with me. What, what I'm going to do, I'm going to start in verse 6 from last, from last week. We're going to start in verse 6 and read through, because we're going to reference verse 8 this morning pretty dramatically. <laughs> Starting in verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy, and he writes this because he's calling him to be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, verse 5, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to us in useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchment. Alexander the coppersmith did great did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. For the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill, in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Bibulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So Paul's wrapping up his final letter to Timothy. As a matter of fact, his final letter, period. If you remember... He said, I'm already being poured out, verse 6, as a drink offering. His time is coming to a conclusion. He says, and my, the time of my departure has come. He knows that his ministry is being wrapped up. It's going to be completed in prison ministry, um, and, and then he's going to die. That's his perspective. And so he's writing the final words to Timothy. Now, it's really important when you think about this, 
may you recognize that Paul is writing to Timothy, his beloved. Probably one of the dearest people to Paul. And he's communicating almost like his last will to him, his last desires to him. Last things. It's almost, when you read 2 Timothy, it's almost like all the way through you get the idea of Paul's writing Timothy and saying, listen, Timothy, if you forget everything else I have ever said to you, if everything else that I have communicated to you, if all the rest of my ministry to you somehow turns to dust, don't forget this. Don't forget these things. Cling to these. And that's what we've been finding every step of the way. And it's reaching its climax now. Although you would think that it reached its climax in verses 6 through 8. It didn't. It has yet to reach its climax. And it will in the section we're looking at today. The question before us this morning is really quite simple. It can be phrased in a variety of ways. The first way that we can give it is, do you love Jesus? That's the question. Do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? That's the question. It's always the question, isn't it? It's not questioned if Jesus loves, right? The only question is, do I love? Which, if I don't, obviously it begs the question, am I, am I loved by Jesus, right? But for our sake of discussion today, do you love Jesus? Now, on that easy question, it's very easy to answer. Of course I do. I'm here at church today, aren't I? I'm a member of the church, aren't I? Or whatever the case may be. I have my devotions. I pray. Of course I love Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Of course I love Jesus. I would present to you that loving Jesus is much different than we think it is. Much more different than we think it is. And I'm convinced that we can be people who think we love Jesus when we don't. Paul elsewhere talks about at the end times that deception is coming. Doesn't he say that? Deception's coming. And it's going to be so strong that it would be almost as if if God tarried, it could deceive even the elect. Now, it won't deceive the elect. But the implication is that there's going to be a lot of people who think they're elect that aren't. They're going to be deceived. And we know that's the case. We've seen the story throughout the scriptures. There's going to be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord, right? The word many is a key phrase in that. There will be many that will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so he did all these things, and he says, no, I didn't know you. It's striking to see, and you see that, that theme running all over the place in Scripture, all over. When we get in Hebrews, we're going to see it pop up repeatedly. And so I just want you to be aware of that as we go into the text. The question is, do you love Jesus? The follow-up question I need to ask is a little bit more uncomfortable. And the little more uncomfortable question is, what does that look like? Or to put it a different way, how do you know you love Jesus? That becomes a little more uncomfortable of a question. How do you know you love Jesus? Notice I didn't ask you, how do you know Jesus loves you? I asked, how do you know you personally love Jesus? That's the question. 
what I'm asking is, what's the evidence? There's no accusation in the statement. None. There's only a question. So don't read behind the lines. I'm just asking the question. What does it look like to love Jesus? Now, the reason why I ask that question is because we're going to discover some really uncomfortable things today that's going to challenge our thinking with regard to if we love Jesus. At least I hope it does. It challenges me. So let's take a look at the text. But before we get into the text this morning, 9 and following, I want to jump back to verse 8. Actually, we'll jump back again to verse 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. <coughs> Remember that phrase, that, that sentence in verse 7. There's three parts of that sentence in verse 7. Okay, it's really important. I'm not going to reference it again, but it's really important because Paul is establishing something here. We talked about it last week. He's establishing what it looks like to love Jesus. Does that make sense so far? Verse 7 is what it looks like to love Jesus. I fought the good fight. This is at the end. We're in the middle, as I said last week. We're at the end. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I don't want to rehash old news from last week, but I just want you to think about it. If you weren't here last week or if you don't remember, I encourage you to go online and listen to the message. Folds into verse 8. It's because of verse 7. As we said last week, that Paul says, henceforth, or because of this. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. If verse 7 weren't true for Paul, in other words, then verse 8 would not be true either. There would not be a crown of righteousness for him. Now, that doesn't mean it's a work salvation thing, but as we talked about before, when God saves someone and takes them from death to life, that life does not look like death. It looks like life. And it looks like fighting the good fight. It looks like running the race. I changed it, okay, because it's past tense for Paul. It looks like fighting the good fight. It looks like running the race. It looks like keeping, protecting, guarding, sharing, proclaiming, keeping the faith. It doesn't mean keep as in under a bushel. To quote a scripture passage. That should ring for everybody. It means letting your light shine, letting the faith shine, right? As a result of, and that's caused by Christ who began the good work in you and continues to perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. If I truly love Jesus because he first loved me, then I am going to be someone who is fighting the good fight, running the race, keeping the faith. So I ask the question, do you love Jesus? Before we get into the rest of it. Okay, it's a very important question because too often we conjure up what, we, what it means to love Jesus, but it's not verse 7. It's something else. But Paul says, no, it's verse 7. I'm so enthralled with Jesus that I'm keeping the faith. I'm so enthralled, so enthralled with Jesus that I'm running the race. I'm so enthralled with Jesus that I'm fighting the good fight. You see? So 
we do is we create, we dumb it all down. Too often we say, well, I love Jesus because I, and any number of things. I put money in the offering plate. I teach Sunday school class. I, I come to church regularly. I have my devotion. I listen to Christian radio. I, I on and on, on. Those are not what he's talking about here. Not even close. know Paul's life at all, you know that the Paul is living is radically different. But he goes on in verse 8 and says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And the key for us from for today's message is the next phrase, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Now what Paul is doing here is several things. Firstly, he's saying, I'm about ready to, in effect, I'm about ready to introduce you to some who love his appearing. And I'm about to introduce you to some who don't. Some dramatically love his appearing and some don't. And some are going to shock you. Is what he's saying. And some didn't and now they do. Some did and now they don't. Before we get off of verse 8, there's one thing I want to point out to you that I didn't tell you last week. Because I want to talk about this one. I want you to notice what he says in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also on all who loves his appearing. The key word in that entire text, verse 8, is the word love. It's an interesting choice of words. It's a very interesting choice of words. Paul tells Timothy that because of God at work in him, transforming him, evidenced by his life, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness. And also for anyone who loves his appearing. They long for his appearing. They look for it day after day after day. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day. Hopefully today's the day. Living with that mentality driving them. Perhaps my groom will come to save me. Does that make sense so far? And I choose the word groom very specifically, even though the scripture doesn't. You'll see why in just a second. Because the word Paul uses for love is the word you all know. It's agape. Now, it's a form of agape which is described in a variety of ways. You could describe it as a covenantal love. For sake of our discussion here, I think it's a good way to put it. Some people describe it as God's love. And I, don't, I think that's overbrushing it. I, I don't think that's what it really means. You'll see why in a few minutes. But it is a covenantal love. Now, why is that really important? Well, you know, oftentimes... When we do communion, and I appreciate we're doing communion this morning, oftentimes when, when we do communion, I talk about that. Because Jesus says, when we hand out the cup, he says what? This is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink and remember me, right? It's the new covenant in my blood. Here he uses a word for covenantal love, agape, all those who agape, who love, covenantally love my appearing. What is that? What's so significant about that? 
Well, one of the things I explain oftentimes when we do communion is covenantal, this new covenant is a real radical idea. A new covenant means if we're part of that covenant, if we've been ushered into the covenant, we've been given a covenant that changes what? Anybody remember? I say it every month. Anybody? It changes our very, okay, this is terrible, identity. It changes our very identity, okay? If I'm going to use the illustration, when Andrew and Laura got married, and I, I was involved in their in, in the process, I did talk to them about that idea that, that when, when, you, when you establish covenant with one another, something happens. The thing that happens is there's a change of identity. No longer is it Andrew and Laura, two separate people. Now, we see two separate people. They're not like Siamese twins. But they're no longer two separate people. Their identity is folded up in each other. The identity, if they are having a correct marriage, is an identity that is co-joined. It's no longer Andrew's life and Laura's life. It's no longer Andrew's desires and Laura's desires. It better not be. It's no longer um, Andrew's hopes and dreams and, and, and Laura's hopes and dreams. They merge. Now, we're not perfect. I understand that. We fail often. Yeah. Except, for, except for Andrew and Laura. But, <laughs> but the picture of covenantal, of a covenant, is where it's not just a promise that people make. It's something much more radical when it comes to marriage. It's something much more radical than a promise. It's a change of identity. That's why in, in, in the Old Testament, chapter 2 of Genesis, it says, the two shall what? Become one what? Flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Two becoming one. Change of identity. Now, when two sinful creatures, two, two sinful beings come together and become one, it's never perfect, right? It's always flawed. Because we still struggle with our own desires, our own hopes, our own dreams, our own selfishness, and everything else. I understand that. But what's interesting is the word love is a covenantal word. To have loved, he's appearing, he's saying, in effect, and for those who covenantally love his appearing. They're in the covenant. And being in the covenant, it's an identity issue. Identity has changed. Now, you may think I'm making too much of it, but you're going to find out I'm not just a little bit. Identity has changed. You're no longer your own, but you have been bought with a price. So what? What does the text say next? Glorify God with your body, right? Colossians chapter 3 says, you chapter 3, verse 3, it says, you have died and your what? Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That sounds like a change of identity to me, doesn't it? Once I was a dead branch, I've been grafted in. And miracle of miracles, I have started to evidence life, which results in fruit, 
which results in him pruning me so that I yield much fruit. I'm finding my life in the vine, change of identity. Before, it was a branch that was off by itself. And you looked at it and you said, it's a dead branch. But now you see the entirety of the vine with all of the branches in the vine. Change of identity. You see that? So when we ask the question, do you love Jesus? What Paul introduces in the end of verse 8 is this. The love he's talking about, he says, in effect, I don't want you to miss it. I'm not talking about love the way most people talk about love. I love pizza. Most Christians, I would present to you, eat pizza more often than they read the scriptures. So if you think that you can't equate the two, think again. Or if you want to be a little bit more tight, you probably eat food more often than, you, than, than we enjoy the scriptures. Physical food versus spiritual food, don't we? Three times a day we eat physical food. For many of us, if we're not careful, we can go days without even thinking about spiritual food. What he's saying is, henceforth there is laid up for me and anyone who covenantally loves his appearing. In other words, Christ has loved me and has changed my identity. My identity is no longer me because I've been bought with a price. My identity is no longer me because I've been grafted into the vine. My identity is no longer me because I have, I have been hidden with Christ in God. It is no longer me, but it is now Christ in me, the hope of glory. And we can go on and on with other passages because they're everywhere. Identity is everything. So the question in verse 8 to you and I is to ask this really important question. The really important question is, what is my identity? Now, I, I'm asking the question really importantly because, and we've got to really slow down and think about it. Because it's very easy to say, my identity is Christ. And then start to ask yourself some questions. If I may just probe quickly before we get into verse 9. Let me just meddle a little bit. You say your identity is in Christ? Let me ask you a question. Do you minister to people? Save people? Do you minister to them? Do you reach out and purposefully and carefully minister Christ to other believers? I need to be ministered to with regard to Christ. From other believers. And you need to be ministered to by Christ from other believers. We all need Christ. We all do. Do you minister to people? Do you look for opportunities? Do you pursue? Do you chase opportunities? Is it ever in your mind or regularly in your mind? I want, more than anything else, I want to minister to other believers. I want to encourage. I want to exhort. I want to confront. I want to rebuke believers. That's what he said, didn't he? Being in chapter 4, preach the word, be added in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, with great suffering and patience. 
Is that what he said? Is that you? Because that's what covenantal love of God looks like, love of Jesus looks like. That's what it looks like. See, the glorious appearing, or the, 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 the crown of righteousness is only reserved for those who are covenantally changed. That's it. If you're not covenantly changed, yeah, it's not for you. If I'm not covenantly changed, it's not for me. If he's not my identity, it's not for me. Let me probe a little bit further. Is your identity Christ? Do you proclaim him to a lost and dying world regularly? Do you? The people you recreate with, the people you work with, the people that you live around, your neighbors, your loved ones that are lost, your friends that are lost. Do you? I'm asking it really, really importantly, because here's what I want to say about this. And I said it before, I think, but I'm going to say it again. It amazes me how often people will call me and say, could you pray for so-and-so? And I say, sure. What's wrong? And they tell me there's something physical wrong. Here, there, or something else. Oh, okay. Pray for me. That's great. I'll pray for them. And I'll ask the question, especially if it's not somebody that I know. I ask them, so is that person a believer? Well, you've heard me talk about this before. Well, I'm not really sure. I pray for them, and I check up. Are they doing better? Yeah, they're doing better. And I ask them, so is that person a believer? Well, I'm not really sure. And then six months later, I check up again. Is that person a believer? I don't really know. That's not covenantal love. That isn't. If that's you, you may not be getting crown of righteousness. And I may be really wrong. You may not be getting crown of righteousness. Can I just say this? Because your Christianity can't trust can't cross the street. And your, if your Christianity can't go to your neighbor, you're lost. If your Christianity can't go and doesn't go to the people you recreate with, you're lost. If your Christianity can't go to your loved ones and your friends, you're lost. And absolutely, if your Christianity can't go to other believers, you're lost. Because the only people who receive the crown of righteousness are people whose identity is folded up in Christ. Because that's what Jesus himself is. When he saves people, they begin to look like Jesus. No, imperfectly. But when he saves people, they become like Jesus. Because their life is hidden with Christ in God. How can we not look like Jesus if we have his righteousness? If we have his righteousness and we stop and ask ourselves, did Jesus, did Jesus Christianity, if I use the term, did Jesus Christianity cross the street? Did it? My goodness, it, it crossed the country. Did Paul's Christianity cross the street? It crossed.
across the continent. Mind you that what Jesus said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 was, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and when I do, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, we've made it again into an imperative, a command, that we need to go. But it's not. He's saying what's going to happen is, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. It didn't say you must be. It didn't say get your sorry butts out there and do it. It's not what he said. Jesus said you shall be witnesses. Jerusalem, well, that's where he was. That's where they were. They're speaking about Jerusalem. It's right there close to home, across the street. Make sense? They're across the street. To Jerusalem and Judea, a little bit bigger area. As, as Jerusalem gets inundated, you're going to find, and as you travel, because you will travel, you're going to move out into Judea. Guess what? You're taking your covenant with you. Make sense? Which means what's going to happen there? You're going to proclaim Christ there. Jerusalem and Judea. Samaria even further out. If you go to Samaria, so to speak, you're going to take your covenant with you. You're taking Jesus with you. And the result is, Jesus will, if you're covenantally loving him, you will proclaim Christ there. And then to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, not many of us are going to make it to the uttermost part of the earth ourselves, right? But none of us stay in our house all the time, do we? We do have our own Jerusalem. If we wanted to be literal, if we wanted to be literal, we could take about a four-mile radius all the way around, all the way around the, uh, the uh, maybe two-mile radius all the way around the, uh, the house that I live in, or the house that you live in, because that's not Jerusalem. If you want to be literal, that's what you could do. That you get the idea. Jerusalem. Covenantal love means I love Jesus, and so I can't help but talk about the people of Jesus, because I've been changed. And my identity is no longer my own. How can I talk? How can I talk to this person about running all the time when it's not about a physical race? It's about a spiritual race, right? Does that make sense? How can I do that? How is it possible that someone who works in an office, for example, or or maybe a construction field or whatever, how is it possible somebody could go there and work day after day? week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and then retire from there, and nobody in the place knows that they love Jesus. How is it possible? And over that period of time, how is it possible that someone could do that and not give them the entirety of the gospel over those 40 years or whatever the case may be? I mean, that boggles the mind. Because that's not covenantal love. If that's covenantal love, I gotta be honest, I don't want any part of it. I think it's much better if that's if that's how cheap Christianity is, it's better to go eat, drink, and be merry. Because if that's if that's the power of Christ's transformation in our lives, I don't think we have the power to transform anybody. If he can't even change us, 
king changed our identity by saying to us, the gospel is for you. He's given us a spirit, if we're believers. If he doesn't have enough power to transform us, like he did with Moses, like he did with Paul and everybody else, if he doesn't have that kind of power to do that, then he does not have the power to resurrect. He doesn't or can't. He just is. And I don't believe this with him at all. Quite to the contrary, I'm absolutely convinced that covenantal love changes things dramatically. It changes everything radically. How do I know that? Well, besides all the stories we've, we've seen already, all we hear in Scripture, take a peek at verse 9. He starts out with verse, 10, verse 9 to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He, can, he, he, he reiterates that in verse 21, do your best to come to me before winter. Because Paul's expecting, absolutely expecting to die soon. And he's asking John Mark, I'm sorry, he's asking Timothy to come to see him. But I want you to understand something. What he's actually asking Timothy to do is to come and minister to him and become evident in context. He's asking Timothy to come visit him, to minister to him. At this late date, here is the great apostle Paul, who in effect is saying, I need fellow believers to minister to me, to encourage me, to exhort me. Timothy, I need you to come to preach the word to me. Please come. Can I just submit to you? That's evidence of covenantal love. I'm sorry about that. When he cries out to, Paul, to Timothy to come, he's saying, you know what I want more than anything else? sound like you? Here's what I hear oftentimes. Hey, let's get together sometime. Wouldn't it be good for you? Ah, I don't know. I'm kind of busy right now. Okay, right off follow up. Hey, what do you want to get together? Fellowship the word together. Talk about Jesus. Yeah, I'm kind of busy. Life's really complex. Okay, I understand. Life's complex. Back of the lineup there, Dennis. I don't know if anybody would do. I really don't. And anyway, we got to eat. We all get together and eat and talk. That's what they did in Acts chapter 2. They got together and eat to eat and minister to one another. Didn't take up any more time because we all got to eat. And I can't tell how many times, hey, let's get together and fellowship Christ. Well, you know, I'm busy. not willing to sacrifice anything for Christ. Paul says to Timothy, I desperately want you to come. I desperately want you to come. Minister to me. Which brings us to verse 10. The reason why he's asking Timothy to come visit him, to minister to him, is why? For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
redeemer. That's the lesson, right? Twice, Demas is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. In both cases, Demas is ministering alongside Peter. I'm sorry, alongside Paul. Demas is a co-worker of Paul in the gospel. This is a scary one. He's living with Paul. He's traveling with Paul. He's ministering the gospel with Paul. And suddenly, something changed. Something dramatically has changed for for Demas. What has changed? For Demas, in love with this present world, the word he is going to say may be found repulsive. For Demas, having covenantal love for this present world is less attractive than Christ. Hello. Really? Demas was faithful in the gospel. He was faithful. Paul found him incredibly valuable. He referenced him at least twice in his letters. Here in this late stage, Demas had a change of heart. Demas covenantally loved the world. What does that mean, covenantally loved the world? Well, it's very simple. Demas found his identity not in Christ anymore. He found his identity elsewhere. Found it elsewhere. He was moved greater by other things. What other things we don't know? Whatever it was, it was things at Thessalonica most likely. He found other things more valuable to him than Christ. His identity was no longer Jesus. Jesus wasn't the driver, wasn't the fuel, wasn't the engine of his life anymore. Instead, quite to the contrary, other things were. Thessalonica kind of things, whatever they were. But his identity was not Christ. It was the things of the world. Now, this ought to catch our attention. Because if we look at our lives and say, you know, I don't think my identity is Christ, as we were talking about, my covenantal identity, as evidenced by the way I live my life, not what I want to be, but in evidence by the way I live my life, the way my life functions, the emphases of my life, the dreams, the desires, the longings of my life, the pursuits of my life, if they're not all things from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever, then it is something else. If I'm not saying all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory, I'm saying all things are from something else, for something else, to something else, to that thing be glory. That's what we're saying. Can't have it both ways. So the question as we read this, you see why I say it's going to a climax here? Paul's trying to get Timothy to think through and say, wait a second, am I a Demas kind of guy or am I a Paul kind of guy? I'm not trying to set up Paul as a hero. I'm saying Paul loved Jesus. He had a covenant of love for Jesus. He even said that the love of Christ controls me. That's identity. The love of Christ controls me. 
As a result, the evidence is very clear. He lived Christ and him crucified. He lived out the gospel. He lived it out and spoke it out constantly. Demas, on the other hand, for a while did. But then he looked at other things and said, wow, that is Wow, I love that. Oh, my goodness. If only I could do that. Whatever the case may be. Now, I suspect, I don't know this, I'm speculating, I suspect if you went up to Timothy and to Demas and say, hey, Demas, do you love Jesus? I suspect he would say, yeah. Wouldn't shock me at all. Same with the church in Asia. I expect you went to churches in Asia in Paul's day and said, do you love Jesus? At this point in time, about 67 AD or so, do you love Jesus? They would have said, yeah, absolutely. Paul tells us it's still the case. There's still a church. Chapter 1, still churches, but they left him. I suspect Demas, if you asked him, there in Thessalonica, he'd say, yeah, I love Jesus. But his life said he was covenanted to the world. That's the difference. Which begs the question that Paul wants Timothy to be warned about and wants us to be warned about as well, and for Timothy to ask himself, and for us to ask ourselves as well, is my life evidentially connected to and covenanted with Christ, or is my life evidently covenanted to other stuff in my life? That's the question. You see, we still struggle with, I think we can have our cake and eat it too. Still struggle with this late date, even though we've been in the Word for so many years over this issue. We still feel like I can somehow have a life that really doesn't shine the light, blazing the spotlight of Christ. We still think that I can have a light that's under the bushel, so to speak. I still, we still live our lives so often thinking that we could somehow be of the world and yet still be saved. And those issues are mutually exclusive. Those are mutually exclusive. You can't be of the world and be saved. Saves and still he saves and still saves. Simply does. And he transforms people who are going through it. And transforms them. Demas, in love with this present world, has departed me and found Christ. So could I submit to you that we can take Paul this way, and that'll get off of Demas. But we desert Paul, and then we use Paul's example to take Demas. Demas to take another example. We desert Paul by not taking the time in Scripture writing these letters in our lives, not being driven by the truth as revealed in Paul's writings. We're deserting him. Does that make sense? If I'm if I'm not finding, obviously bigger than Paul, but Paul's writings are percolating in my mind. It's obviously standing. 
confidence that I can make a recommendation to you. Thank you for coming to see me. If I don't find Paul's writings percolating in my life, I've deserted him. Does that make sense? If, if, if you ask me if I love my wife, I say, yeah, I love my wife. Where is she? I don't know. When was the last time you saw her? I don't know. When was the last time you thought about her? I don't know. Right? When was the last time you did anything with her? I don't know. I don't know. When was the last time you hang out, hung out at all with anything? One of two things is true. Either I've got a really se- severe case of Alzheimer's, or I don't love my wife. It's got to be one or the other. But yet, I'll still say I love my wife. It's the craziest thing. Isn't it crazy? It's bizarre. If you think that's, that's okay, there's something wrong. But we do that with Christ all the time. We ignore Paul's writings. We ignore, don't consider James' writings. We don't consider John's writings. We don't consider um, uh, uh, Peter's writings. We don't consider Jude's writings. We don't consider the Old Testament prophets' writings. We don't consider Luke's writings. We don't consider Matthew's writings or Mark's writings. It's not percolating in our lives. And yet we still say, I love Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I am absolutely convinced if that's you, and please, I'm not condemning anybody here, and I'm not even speaking to anybody specifically, but spiritually, I think your life would be better listening. If that's you, you may not be heading towards a sound life. You may not be. In fact, you most likely aren't. That is the power. He changes you. You know what? I wanted to go further than this, but we're at the top of time. Let me just wrap things up briefly. Kind of challenging, I hope. Kind of convicting, I hope. Verse 7, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It was the end of the life, end of the line for Paul. Although it may be the end of the line for you, it may not be. Most likely it's not. Most likely next Sunday we'll all be here again, although we don't know what tomorrow will hold. But the point I'm trying to make is this. You're in the middle of it, as I said last week. Today is the day of salvation. You say, well, I'm already saved. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day that you need to repent. Christ says if we confess our sins, and in the gospel epistle of 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So in the repentant thief, who was not repenting at first, but was repenting next to Jesus, and he cried out to Jesus, asking forgiveness. Doesn't mean we can bank on today's date. Today's the day. I challenge you. If you're convicted at all, I 
Levi hung on a tree to save a special people for himself. And if this is not viewed as describing here, he saves for people for himself. And the next day is coming. And the next day is coming. Come to him and find salvation. Come to him and find satisfaction. Come to him and find Come to him and find Don't deeply. 